Uh, and thank you all uh, for letting me be here. That was quite the reception that I received. I was not expecting that, and it made me feel extremely uncomfortable. So thank you all for that. Um, it is Memorial Day weekend. It is a holiday weekend, so I'm here. I, I am back. I'm exclusively with Marshall, a pastor of holiday weekend. So I'm glad to be here, and I really am glad. I, I do want to tell Marshall sometime this week that I would like to see if this church exists outside of a holiday weekend, like in the winter or something like that, just to make sure you all are doing okay, not just on the holidays. Um, I think since Easter, you all have been in a series on the parables. Uh, you all have been in Luke's gospel leading up to Easter and now after Easter, walking through these stories of Jesus that are so important, that are so interesting, that are so confusing in so many ways. And I, I tried to look on the, the podcast to see if there was an order to these, and it seems like you all are just covering different parables and so today we're going to be in Luke 10, 25 to 37, with perhaps the most famous parable, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, and so just for context here, because you all have kind of been all around with the parables, Luke 10 comes right in the middle of what they call Luke's travel narrative. In Luke 9, Jesus turns his face to Jerusalem to the cross, and from Luke 9 to Luke 19 is Jesus traveling with his followers all the way to his crucifixion. And it's interesting Luke does that. Matthew and Mark spend two chapters talking about Jesus traveling to the cross. Luke takes 10. And that's very intentional for us because in those 10 chapters, Luke gives us all these parables that are really unique to the Gospel of Luke. And as he's showing us these parables of Jesus, he's discipling us in what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And this is the first of those parables on the way to Jerusalem. And so let's turn our attention to that this morning. Luke 10, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word this morning. We're thankful that it meets us where we're at. We're thankful that you don't just tell us what we want to hear. We're thankful for the way the word molds our hearts and melts them and, and brings us back to you. And I pray that by your spirit you would do what you always do, Lord, what you promised to do in your word, that it would not go out and return empty, 
but that you would work in our hearts to make us fall greater in love with Jesus and you'd help us actually love our neighbors. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It has been said by a lot smarter people than me that America is perpetually repeating the year 1968. I don't know if you've heard that. And most people in here, myself included, are closer to being born the year of 1998. So you all are going to need some explanation of why 1968 is so important. It's really fascinating to look at the year 1968 and start walking through it. And it's, it's fascinating and it's really sad because it's a mirror into our own times. 1968 was the year of the Vietnam War. So you had all this global strife, this unease nationally. 1968 was one of the most heated times of the civil rights movement. You had the sanitation strike in Memphis. You had the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. And you had all this racial strife going on in our country. 1968 was the year of the sexual revolution. And there's all this confusion with the changes of society, confusion with gender and sexuality. And there was just so much tragedy in 1968. There was political distrust. There was riots in the street. There was shootings and assassinations, including Robert Kennedy. And month after month in 1968, America seemed to be coming apart at the seams as the people became more and more divided over every issue. Can you relate? In the midst of all that, in the midst of that that tumultuous year in 1968, an unlikely hero started to emerge. And this hero did not wear a cape. He actually wore a cardigan. You might know this, but 1968 was the year that Fred Rogers began taping his beloved TV show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And it's interesting how popular that show became, especially with children, but not just with children, with their parents, because Fred Rogers would show up every week on that television program, and he didn't really answer any questions. He asked one. And this is the question he asked. At the beginning of every show for 895 episodes, he asked this question, and you know it. Won't you be my neighbor? And now fast forward to our day, 2022, and it still seems like we're divided on every issue in every area. Political issues, gender issues, race issues, you name it, and we're divided on it. And it makes you wonder that maybe Fred Rogers' question was more important than we thought. It makes you wonder how important that question was. And we see in our passage, it actually wasn't his question at all. It was Jesus' question. This question, this question of being someone's neighbor is one we desperately need to answer, and Jesus is going to help us. So three points from this passage on how to become a neighbor. We're going to see the problem of a neighbor, the parable of the neighbor, and then Jesus' point with the neighbor. And I'll walk through those one by one. But first, let's look at the problem of a neighbor. Before we get into the parable of the Good Samaritan, you can see in the passage, we first must see why Jesus told the parable in the first place. So look at verse 25. And behold, which is Luke's way of saying, you need to pay attention to this. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when you hear that word lawyer, don't think lawyer in the modern sense. It's not talking about lawyer like in the court system. It's talking about a lawyer like a religious teacher. This person was an expert in the law, meaning expert in the scriptures. 
And he asked Jesus a pretty good question, which honestly we should all ask at some point. He asked Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? In verse 26, Jesus responds to the question himself. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and your mind. Quoting Deuteronomy 6, because he's an expert in the law. And then he quotes from Leviticus 19, the Old Testament reading this morning, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Simple enough. The man asked Jesus a question. Jesus asked the question back. He gives him the answer. Should be all done. But the man doesn't leave. Why doesn't the man leave? Well, what was implicit in verse 25 that the man came to test Jesus now becomes explicit in our passage. Look at verse 29. This is the problem of the neighbor. But he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And with that verse, we find out what the lawyer was truly looking for all this time. You see, the lawyer was not looking for answers and how to love, he was looking for a loophole. He was looking for a way he could justify himself to make himself right. You see, during that time, a neighbor in that context was generally someone from your own community, some, your own family. It was closely tied together. But Jesus came, specifically in the book of Luke points this out, he came for the outsider. He came for the outcast, the lowly, the least of these. So he starts doing things with people outside the community, the sinners, the prostitutes, the Samaritans. So he's trying to figure out, this expert in the law, how do I limit the law so that I can then therefore do it? I'll give you an example. It's, it, it's like when I try to become healthier. So I really want to be healthier, so I think, what's the best, one of the best ways to become healthier? I just need to be, eat healthier food. But what's really healthier food? I mean, come on. What, what, what really is healthier food? I, we probably should start with sweets. But what's really a sweet? There's all kinds of different sweets, all kinds of different sugar. So it's probably best to not just talk about sweets. We need to talk about desserts. And then you got to define desserts. What's a dessert? Is a dessert a donut? No, dessert's probably more after dinner. Donuts are more breakfast, so I can probably still do donuts because I don't want to give up sweets entirely. And you see what I'm doing here. By further defining his terms, the lawyer is not actually trying to love, he's trying to limit. In the same way, by defining dessert, I'm not trying to be healthier. I'm just trying to limit what I have to do. You see, the problem of a neighbor has little to do with his question, who is my neighbor? It has everything to do with the status of his heart. When we look at our world and we look at all the problems going on, we always ask the question, why can't we just get along? And we often think the answer to that question has to do with fear or hate or indifference or anger. And yes, the Bible would affirm all those are part of the problem. All those, of course, are why we can't get along. But that's not where the problem starts. Jesus tells us the problem starts where this story starts. Here we have a man, instead of loving his neighbor, is trying to figure out a way to love himself. That's the problem of a neighbor. What is our problem? We have that desire too. We all have a desire deep down in the human heart, not to love others, but to justify ourselves. What does this mean? 
I'll give you one example of how this plays out today in the, in the world so we can kind of start to get a grasp about this. Some of you all might have heard of the professor and psychologist. His name is John Gottman. He's a professor at the University of Washington. He has spent the last four decades researching relationships, particularly relationships inside of a marriage. And after four decades of research, he claims, and this has been proven to be true, that he can spend one hour watching a couple interact, and he has 94% accuracy of whether that couple will be divorced in the next three years. So he can, talk about how scary that is. He can watch a couple interact for just one hour, and then with 94% accuracy detect if that couple is headed for divorce in the next three years. How? How can he detect that so quickly? Well, he doesn't look at differences. He looks at their heart. Here's what he does. He says he'll throw in a heated topic, a heated topic in, in our world, a heated topic in their relationship, and he'll watch them interact for an hour. And what is he looking for? He's not looking for conflict. He's not looking for anger. He's not looking for shouting or yelling. Yes, all those are important. But what he deeply wants to see is as this couple interacts over a debated issue, are they going to roll their eyes at each other? That is what he is looking for. He calls it contempt. And he says contempt is a relational killer because contempt says not just that I'm right, but I'm better than you. That's what the eye roll does in a marriage. It's I am better than you, so I no longer have to care about what you're feeling, what you believe, what you're going through. Because if you're better than someone, you're not trying to love, you're trying to win. And this is what we do too. This is why self-justification is so dangerous because self-justification, trying to prove yourself right, always leads to self-righteousness. It always leads to you think you're better than the other. I spent my last year working at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church, particularly in the neighborhood. And so I, I, get the, I get the unique privilege of getting to be around a lot of different people. And what I've seen in my own heart when it comes to even the poor amongst us, it's so easy to self-justify. It's so easy to think, oh, I'm not like them because I've, I've done this. I've worked really hard, and so that makes me better than, him, better than you. And it's just not true. Gottman, when asked why we can't get along, he said, this is not just a problem in marriages, it's a problem in relationships. He says, this culture of contempt, contempt is not just in our marriage relationships, it's in every relationship in this country. Every relationship in this country is always us first them. Just start with politics. Republicans think they're better than Democrats. Democrats think they're better than Republicans. And then you can begin to trace out all the problems from there. What's our problem? It starts with self-justification. So the first question this morning from Jesus isn't, who is my neighbor? The first question this morning is, which way are you facing? The lawyer is not asking, how can I help my neighbor? He's asking, how can I help myself? He is curved in on himself. He is facing himself, not outward in concern. And so which way are you facing this morning? Jesus knows this about us. He cares enough to stick with us. And that's why he doesn't answer this man's question with a simple definition, but he gives him a parable. Because he knows the problem starts with our heart, and Jesus' parables always go after the heart. So we've seen the problem of the neighbor. Now let's look at the parable. Look at verse 30. Jesus replied, 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, him, departed from him, leaving him half dead. This parable begins in absolute desperation. You have a dying man in desperate need, and this man has found out that what many have found out on that road. This road from Jerusalem to Jericho is one of the most dangerous places in the ancient Near East. It was, in fact, called the Bloody Way. This, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho was 17 miles, so it was long, and it descended over 3,000 feet in elevation. So it was really steep, really dangerous. There was lots of curves and winds and hills, and so it was very easy for someone to be robbed without being seen. And after being beaten and robbed and left for dead, this, Samaritan, or this, this beaten man is approached by two different men, both religious. Look at verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. These two religious men come down the road. They see the man, which is most likely also a Jew, beaten and left for dead, and they pass by on the other side. And the strange thing is, Jesus doesn't tell us why they pass by. There's been several opinions offered, some think it might be religious reasons. In that time, if you touched a dead body, you were unclean for seven days. And so these religious men, this priest, this Levite, might have thought if we, come, if we come upon him and try to help and he ends up being dead, we're going to be ceremonially unclean for the next seven days. So we can't actually do our duties. We have to be separated from our community. It might be that. It could just be fear. This man was robbed. What's going to keep us from being robbed? It could be practical convenience, and we've all been there. These people could just be really busy. They might have just came from worship. They might be going to worship. And it's not really efficient to stop your schedule to help this man in what he needs. Jesus doesn't give us a reason they didn't stop, and he really doesn't have to. Because in the grand scheme of things, looking back on the story, there's not really a reason to stop. There's not really not a reason to stop to help a dead man. We have no excuse here. And at this point in the story, Jesus' original audience would be realizing what Jesus is trying to do. They'd be saying, oh, Jesus, I see what you're doing here. One man comes, religious man. Another man comes, religious man. None of them help their fellow Israelite who is hurt. Now the third person in the story, that's not going to be a religious person. That's going to be a common person. That's going to be a, a lay person, an ordinary person. But instead, Jesus doesn't give them that. He doesn't give them another Israelite. He adds this surprise twist. The hero is not Jewish at all, but he's a Samaritan. And this story is so familiar that we can lose the emphasis of that, but it can't be emphasized enough that the hero in this story is not Jewish, he's Samaritan. Because the Samaritan was the last person they expected to stop and help. In fact, the Jews and Samaritans hate each other so much that the expectation in this situation was not just that the other would step over on his way out, he would step on. That's how much there was hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. They were enemies at every level. They were racial enemies. The Jews believed the Samaritans were half-breeds because they intermarried outside the people of God during the time of exile. They were religious enemies. The Samaritans, because they were outcasts, set up their own worship, and so the people believed they were heretics. And we're told in John 4, 9, 
that the Jews and Samaritans had absolutely no dealings with each other. So this idea of a good Samaritan is really common in our language. There's hospitals named after it. There's churches named after it. But it would have been an oxymoron to the audience. They would, they would say there is no such thing as a good Samaritan. But nevertheless, the third man comes down the road, and he's a Samaritan. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And listen to what this man does. I don't really have time to go into all these practicals here. In these two verses, you can spend the rest of your life trying to live out. In, the, in these two verses, the Samaritan shows just how deep love really goes. Verse 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you back when I come back. He took care of his wounds, his trauma. He gave him transportation. He gave him shelter. He gave him finances. And he even said, If there's anything more, I'm coming back. I'm staying with this. I'm following this up to the end. What made the difference, do you think? Why did the Samaritan stop when the other two religious men didn't? We can't miss this this morning. Go back to verse 33. When the Samaritan saw him, he had compassion. And that's the difference. The others saw him and went to the other side. The Samaritans saw him, and something began to happen in here. That word compassion literally means to suffer with, calm with, passion suffer. So when this man saw the other man that was hurt, he did not just see him with his eyes, he saw him with his heart. And he said, I want to suffer alongside of him. Martin Luther King Jr. sums this difference up well. He says this, I imagine that the first question the priest and Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the Good Samaritan reversed that question. He said, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? You see, the priest and the Levite, just like the lawyer, they're facing in. They might be facing in because they're fears. They might be facing in because they're religious reasons. They might be facing in because they're conveniences. But they're facing in and the Samaritan is facing out. He's not living with contempt. He's living with what we all need. He's living with compassion. In his book, The Power and the Glory, uh, Graham Greene, the, the great American novelist, writes the story of the whiskey priest. I don't know if you've read it, but it's this priest who has struggled his whole life with alcohol, which is why he's called the whiskey priest. At one point in the story, the priest finds himself in a conversation with a church lady, and this church lady is very much a holier-than-thou type of person. She lives with a lot of contempt. She's very proud of her holiness and her religion. And she becomes repulsed when she finds out this man is, not only, is a priest that struggles with alcohol. She becomes repulsed at him. And all of the priest tries to be kind to her. Here's what she tells him. The sooner you're dead, the better. And the whiskey priest after getting over the initial shock of that statement, he starts to reflect on the, on the connection between compassion and love. And this is what he says. When you visualize a man or a woman carefully, 
you could always begin to feel compassion because that's the quality of God's image carries with it. God's image always carries with it compassion. He goes on, when you see the lines at the corner of their eyes, when you see the shape of someone else's mouth, when you think about how their hair grew, it then starts to become impossible to hate that person. And he ends by saying, I then realized hate was just a failure of imagination. What is he saying? Our hate, our differences, that all comes down to a failure of imagination. It's a failure to see someone as they have been created, as image bearers of God. What the Samaritans and Jews were struggling with, they didn't realize they're both God's creation. They both bear God's image. And after we get into the parable, our initial question still hasn't changed. It's still, which way are you facing? The priest and the Levite have faced inward. The Samaritan has faced outward with compassion. And it's so hard to see the world like this. It really is, which is why we struggle with it so much. In a culture that values efficiency, that values individual success, where everyone seems to be looking out for their own, there's no time for compassion. But just a simple exercise today, if you will. Go for a walk somewhere. Go for a walk in this beautiful weather. Go to a park. Go downtown. Walk along the streets. Go to Greyline Station. Just go somewhere where there's a lot of people. And instead of being in your own world, as you're walking, look at people. Pay attention to, pay attention to them as close as you possibly can without being creepy. I don't want to hear about you all in the news tonight. But pay attention to people as you walk by them. And as you pass by them, say things like, made in the image of God. Image bearer. That rich man, that poor man, black, white, Hispanic, male, female, homeless guy on the street outside of city center, the guy that lives in the penthouse of city center. All made in God's image. This is why C.S. Lewis said, next to the Lord's Supper, your neighbor is the holiest object God has given to you. Because your neighbor is God's image. And despite all of our differences in our neighbor, we find the very image of God. So that's the parable. We've seen the problem of neighbor love in that we have this culture of contempt, this, this heart of self-justification. We've seen the parable, this parable of the Samaritan that should not have compassion but has compassion to the point where he wants to help this person in need. And now let's wrap this thing up with what is Jesus' point the whole time? What's the point of, this, of all this, this encounter with this lawyer? After Jesus finished the parable, he again asked a question to the lawyer. Look at verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. And with that final question that Jesus asked, he drives his point home. Did you catch it? Did you catch what Jesus is doing? With Jesus' question, he reverses the lawyer's original question. Did you notice that? He doesn't ask him back, so who do you think is your neighbor? He asked a different question, which is why this is the title of my sermon. He asked, who proved to be a neighbor to this man? Or better trans translated, who was the one who became a neighbor to the man who had need? 
Who was the one in the story that actually became a neighbor? And the man is trapped. And this is what parables do to us. Parables are really dangerous. They're not just stories of moral instruction like Aesop's fables. Parables form us. Jesus is not after information. The lawyer had all the information. Jesus is wanting to form his heart towards something. And when people hear Jesus' parables, it either forms them closer to Jesus or forms them farther away from Jesus. This man is trapped with Jesus' question because he knows he has to answer the question with his biggest enemy. He knows he has to say to the Samaritan. And you notice at the end, he can't even do it. He can't even say the Samaritan. He has to say the one who showed him mercy. You can see it. There's still that contempt there. He can't even name the hero of the story. So what's Jesus' point? Jesus' point was the man is asking the wrong question the whole time. And maybe so are we. The question isn't, who is my neighbor? The question is, whose neighbor are you? The question isn't, who is my neighbor out there? The question is, am I becoming a neighbor in here to those in need, to those I can help? A couple of weeks ago, these questions got played out in real time just down the street on UK's campus. I don't know if you heard the story, but it was right after graduation, and Rabbi Lipman, that that is uh, in charge of the the Jewish center at UK's campus, um, he was outside on his front lawn, and where he lives in the Jewish center on campus is right there in the the middle of campus. He was outside on his front lawn, he was making a phone call, and there was a bunch of graduation parties going around him, and the house right across the street was hosting one of those big parties. And one of the people at the party saw Rabbi Lipman and saw that he was Jewish because of what he was wearing and decided to yell out in front of everyone, we should all kill the blank, which insert a horrible slur for Jewish people. And the rabbi was, was very shook up by this. But instead of hiding from the hate, instead of going back into his house and hiding from it, or attacking the hate, going over there, and getting into an altercation. He walked across the street to his neighbor's house, to, to many which he knew and had good relationship with that were hosting the party. He walked across the street, knocked on the door, and asked to talk to the young man. And his neighbors were horrified. They were so embarrassed that someone at the party said that to them, said that to him. And he said, I, I appreciate your apology. I know that had nothing to do with you, but I, I still want to talk to the yeller. <laughs> That's what he said. I, I want to talk to the yeller. And so he waited while they went up and got him. He didn't initially want to come out. He waited for up to an hour for the young man to finally come outside. And when he did, they sat down, and Rabbi Lipfin told him how hurtful that slur was to him. And not just how hurtful it was to him, but how much that slur had been connected to a history of abuse to his people, including a massacre in 1941 by the Nazis that destroyed a lot of his family. And at the end of that conversation, the young man apologized in tears and promised the rabbi, I will never use that language ever again. But Liffin didn't want it to end there. He didn't want it to end with just an apology in tears. The last thing he told the man was, it's obvious with that kind of hate in your heart, you don't have any Jewish friends, and I'd like to be one of those. I've been asking throughout this sermon, which way are you facing But now we get to the real point of Jesus. How do you become a neighbor? 
Well, that depends on who's facing you. What could change a college student from yelling racial slurs to Jewish people to actually might start befriending them? Someone came after him. Someone came after that young man, not with contempt, but with compassion. And what will change our hearts? What will change our hearts from being self-focused to being others-focused? We have to realize someone came after us too. Did you notice that in the parable, Jesus could have made the Jewish person the hero of the story. It would still be enemies becoming neighbors. He could have had the Samaritan lying in the ditch, half dead, and the Jew in the story helping that Samaritan. Same, same overall point, two enemies come together as neighbors. But he didn't do that. He didn't have the Samaritan lying in the ditch. He had the Samaritan as a hero. Why is that? The lawyer. Jesus cared about that lawyer. And he wanted his heart. And he knew the lawyer wanted to be his own savior. And he wanted the, he wanted the lawyer to know his savior was right in front of him. So Jesus put the Jewish man in the ditch because he has to be saved by his enemy. And so do we. We are not the heroes of this story. Becoming a neighbor starts with realizing I'm dead on the side of the road. But you are not left there. You are not left there. Do you remember the first time you realized that the God in heaven who made the heavens and the earth, that he came to you? Do you remember that? The first time that clicked in your heart? That like the Samaritan, he did not just see you, but he came to you? Maybe you're here this morning, you've never realized that. It's never clicked in your heart. Maybe you're like my son Joshua too. And it goes back and forth. My son Joshua's three, and he, right now he loves the song, Jesus Loves Me, which is just the most adorable thing in the world. But it, sometimes when we're singing it to him before bed, he'll look up at you and he'll say, Jesus loves me? He, he, he's asking that question. Because he knows how amazing that might be. And I want to tell you, like I tell him, yeah, buddy, he does. Jesus saw you. He saw all of you. He saw your sins, he saw your suffering, he saw your trauma, he saw your past, he saw your pain. And he did not go to the other side. He came to you. And he stooped down beside you. He bound up your wounds with his very own. He took you upon his back, on his suffering on the cross. And he will carry you all the way home. He will see this thing through. How do I know that? Well, remember the conversation? Where is it happening? The conversation's happening on a road. And where is that road leading to? The cross. And one of the most amazing things about Jesus that we know is not just that he loved, but the cross shows how much he loved not just his friends, but his enemies. That's what's amazing about his love is that he was loving the people even that were murdering him. There's an old Presbyterian pastor that I love named Benjamin Grosmer. He's from the 19th century old guy. But he liked to imagine these fictional conversations Jesus might be having. And one of my favorites is he liked to imagine a fictional conversation that Jesus might have had later concerning the man that stuck a spear in his side. What he'd want to tell that man that put a spear in his side. And if this doesn't turn us all into neighbors, I don't know what will. 
But here's what he says. He's fictionalizing a conversation of Jesus. Here's what he thinks Jesus would say. If you meet that poor wretch that thrust that spear into my side, please tell him there's another way. There's a better way of coming at my heart. If he will repent and come to me, I will cherish him in that very heart he's trying to wound. I'll think, I think he'll find a bl- the blood that was shed enough atonement for his sin of shedding that blood. And please tell him from me, he will put me to far more pain by refusing this offer of my blood for his sins than when he first drew it from me. This is our God. This is our Savior who has become our neighbor. And now he calls us to become neighbors to those that are in need. Now he calls us to become neighbors to those who need us because after what he has done, what else could we be? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful. And I pray that you would fill our heart, not with condemnation, but with this amazing love that you you have come to us, that you have cared for us, that you have bound our wounds. And may you turn our hearts so much on you that we love to care for others at need. Lord, this has to be a work of your spirit. And we know that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.